testing my microphone. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? If you're joining us for the first time, welcome to Everything's Relative Podcast. I am Eve Sturgis. I'm the host. I'm talking to you now from my basement office in Los Angeles, California. And a few years ago, I found out that the man who raised me and I called dad was not actually biologically related to me as a father. Not actually not biologically related to me at all. And thus uh, began an existential crisis that may never see closure. Uh, I mean, it's not, I wouldn't call it a crisis at this point, not anymore. But uh, I use this time to talk to others who have had DNA discoveries. And it turns out there's a whole fucking lot of us, like thousands of us, and there will only be more. In fact, uh, a whole bunch of us are going to Louisville, Kentucky in a few weeks uh, for the first ever like big convention of our people. Uh, we're called NPEs. Uh, it includes late discovery adoptees and donor conceived people. The convention is called Untangling Our Roots. It will be from March 31st to April 2nd. Uh, it's in partnership with NAP, so that's the National Association of Adoptees and Parents. Uh, it's in a Marriott hotel. Uh, it looks like it's shaping up to be a fantastic time of community and education. This episode, like right now when you're listening, is airing in March, March 10th. So I am almost totally, absolutely positive that there are still tickets available for anyone looking to make a last-minute decision. I will be there. So many of my friends will be there. I don't know if I have any enemies, but if I do, they might be there too. I am moderating a panel on Saturday with fellow podcasters Lily Wood, Alexis Arselt, Louise McLaughlin, Damon L. Davis. Um, I thought it might be cool if I got a bunch of podcasters together to talk about what they're experiencing and learning in this unique position. So Untangling Our Roots agreed, and they said I could do it. So I'm going to go to Louisville. Uh, my panel is on Saturday. Will you be there? Please let me know. Please say hi to me. Um, will I be selling pins and t-shirts? The only way to find out is to be there and to say hello. But anyway, that is all in a few weeks. Uh, I'm here to talk about here, today, here today. Uh, I have a conversation with a kind man named Stephen who shares his NPE story, a little bit about his conversion to Judaism uh, his understanding of family relationships and trauma. And I don't want to say that it was a pleasant surprise because that makes it sound like I didn't expect to have a good time. But the conversation as a whole, how do I describe it? Like went places I didn't expect and I was really touched. You'll see what I mean. Um, one thing before we start, is a minor content warning about the story, kind of a two-part content warning. Uh, so what happens? Sometimes I have an interview that's right after... Okay, so how do I explain it? One day, I mean, some days, I have interview after interview lined up, like in a single day. And it's a lot of jumping from one kind of tone to another, depending on what kind of story you know we're talking about. So it could be awkward uh, if I'm not shifting appropriately. So I had just finished this like high energy, light and fun episode with someone. Uh, 
before I connected with Steven. And I was still in that zone kind of when he starts his story, starts to tell me, and he describes this violent trauma like right at the top of his story. So that's some content warning. And then also on top of that, I think you can hear my like shock and confusion as my tone like makes this really clunky shifts. Um, so I, like I just want to say now that I hope no one thinks I take our topics lightly or was trying to make it funny when I shouldn't have been. Uh, I was just making an adjustment in the moment. And Stephen mentioned afterwards he was worried about the shock, this like the shocking turn and um, – he was just sort of worried about the recording. So I promised that I would make an announcement about it beforehand. This is that announcement. There is a violent trauma mentioned at the beginning of the story, so be ready for it. I was not ready for it, as you'll soon hear. But thanks for being with me, everybody, tolerating my awkward conversational skills as I try to make sense of the world through our DNA discoveries. It seems straightforward to me, but... Um... You know, just t like if you were telling me at a party what happened, if I was like, wait, what happened? Uh, you know, yeah, just tell yeah. me um, what this what this journey has looked like for you. That's uh, and you could tell me where, you know, also tell me um, it's always helpful to start with your name. if just first name if you only want or no name and where you're at, where you are and where you grew up and what that was like, in a, you know, in a in a sort of brief, um, okay. brief kind of way. So we sort of get an idea of what where you were um, in identity before you, before this all happened. Yep. Okay. Um, so I was born in Dayton, Ohio, currently live in Columbus and, uh, starting the story. Um, I never quite know whether to start when I found out about my paternity and then move backwards to the event or start back then and move forward, which is not how it unfolded for me, but I'm going mm -hmm. to try that. I'm okay. Going to start okay. Back at the beginning. Cool. So, uh, before I was born, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, in 1964, my mother was waiting on tables at a restaurant and my mother and father, and this is my non-biological father, had um, three children and she was waiting on tables for extra money. At her job, there was a shift change and two other servers were exchanging kids for babysitting on a Saturday night. And one of the women, uh, her ex-husband showed up, shot her and shot himself in front of my mother. <gasps> so there's this traumatic event whoa right didn't see that was like uh-huh and then they traded the kids and this is about waitressing and how she met and yeah it was super traumatic wow yeah um and when i learned about this much later as a matter of fact just a few years ago i asked my mom's uh surviving siblings and older cousins if they knew and they said they never remembered my mom talking about it mm. and i think my mom buried that piece uh, and later on my brother uh, found a letter she had written to a childhood friend where she she talked about uh, being on nerve pills and the nerve pills were ending. And that sort of fueled my understanding of where her alcoholism came from. And by the mm -hmm. time I was born and throughout the first 25 years of my life was a slow descent uh, of her through alcoholism, ending in alcoholic dementia. As part of that, since I had older brothers and I'm the youngest, uh, my brothers tried to protect me for a lot from what was going on, uh, but I was a naturally curious kid. And at some point they said, uh, uh, so our parents divorced and my mom then was living alone or living on the streets in a gradual state of deterioration. And they, they would tell me, uh, you know, mom wasn't always like this. She was, things were different, you know, before you were born, not to make me feel guilty. Just mm -mm, I, mm -hmm. I understood that. 
And so I was like, how did we get from there to here? Uh, I never quite understood that. Um, after I, I had known my mom to work for a lawyer, I'll call him Joe, and uh, she had taken me to work with her a couple of times. I didn't know him personally, just I'd been in the office with him. He was an attorney. She was the legal secretary. When I was 14, uh, Joe died. Uh, and these are all, I should say, also uh, pseudonyms that I've, I've got a little list here to look through. Sure. Great. <laughs> um, Joe died. And uh, mom called to tell us that. And I was I was sympathetic. I understood she had worked mm -hmm. for him. She was very upset. And my brothers were not sympathetic, very impatient. And I said, why would why are you being so you know mean to her about this and it came out that she had had an affair with joe and it clicked with me that this man was probably my biological father when you were 14. yeah okay yeah. So, okay so that, you just pieces just all fell together right then within that narrative yeah uh, there were there were other jokes my brothers would joke about me being the change of life baby my mom had mm. me when she was 40 and mm -hmm. you know um and I was still young enough that, that, you know, the familial differences, physical differences didn't stand out as much, but I mm -hmm. did have a sense that I just was a different, um, mm -hmm. I felt much mm -hmm. more like my mom's family and not at all like my dad's family. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of put that together and went forward with that thinking, all right, he's, he's my biological father and didn't do much about it. As I got to be an adult, I, uh, I told more people about it and, uh, when I was 25, I was moving from Dayton to Columbus. My mom was in a very bad state and not eating much and not walking. And I thought, this is my last chance. And I just point blank asked her, mom, is dad my real father? And she started to cry and said, I don't know. And I, I wanna, what I want to say about this is I know a lot of times us uh, those of us in this position have other people who are somewhat mean to us or keeping secrets from us. And on the flip side, I was the real jerk here. I was I was cruel and indifferent to her uh, to get information that I thought I had a right to know and damn what anybody else thought. And that, um, that sort of gave me some caution as I moved forward with this. My mom died in 2008 and that opened up the door for me. Can we talk, I just wanna talk about what you just said a minute ago. Um because people don't talk about different perspectives very often in that, that moment of asking for the truth. Um, and so you just described yourself as being, being the unkind one and being callous. And was that something that you realized in the moment or is something no. that you look back on and realize, Oh, that was a big moment for her when she cried, she probably was feeling X, Y, and Z. And I made, I did that. It, it, more, more the latter. Mm -hmm. I, I told some friends I had done that, and I was so happy that I had. Th this was uh, 1991, so we didn't mm -hmm. have the testing. I was so happy that I had that piece of information, and a couple of friends had to tell me that was really cruel. I didn't mm -hmm. know at the time. I, I was, I was a very selfish kid. The way we had grown up, and I thought this was just information about me. You, you were there. You knew it happened. All your emotions you've dealt with it. And I didn't realize she probably had not. Hmm. And it, so it took me a long time, I think, to, uh, you know, I don't, I don't it, it is something I regret. We talk about whether we have regrets or not. And that is something I definitely regret. I don't um, focus on it and, and dwell on it. But I know that there are things I've done wrong in this process, hmm. <laughs> more than other people. Well, that's interesting. Um, 
because I think so many, so many people in our community would say, no, you weren't, you were being cruel. You just needed the information. You just wanted, you just had quote unquote, the right to know. And I, I don't think, I, I think what you're bringing up is a complexity that we often don't talk about, or at least we don't talk about in the, it's often in the podcast or, um, it's just not black or white. Right. It says a lot that you're able to see, see that side and, and admit regret. That's not something people mm, talk about very much, maybe ever. Um, but in our community, it's such a fresh new kind of world of, of people that I don't know. Um, and by all means, everybody correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't know if we, if people are ready to explore their parts in the heartbreak of our stories so much. There are a lot of people who have been wronged and a lot of people for whom this is a surprise. I, I'm fortunate in that I it wasn't a surprise. I rather knew and I just needed the confirmation. So I, I came at this very differently from a lot right. of other people. Right. Um, so there's that. Uh, uh, to get up to um, the, the DNA test, once once she died, I think that because of that conversation and the guilt I had is why I waited until she was dead to take the test. I, I had held in the back of my mind, yeah, when, when my parents die, I'm this is all that I knew. I'm going to pluck a hair from their head, you know, and have it tested. Totally. I'm going <laughs> to mail in their toothbrushes. Darn right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's that's all I thought we had. So mm -hmm. then I, I looked into it. And uh, because he was Jewish, I thought uh, I looked into, I didn't have an understanding of this at the time, but I looked into uh, finding my ancestry. And um, family tree DNA was re recommended as the premier one at that point uh, for Jewish DNA analysis because of their pool of, of testees. So I, I went with them and just did the Y DNA test and they came back. I believe, I honestly believe I talked to Bennett Greenspan when I called down there and said, uh, he's like, yeah, you've got, uh, uh, you've got Jewish DNA. I, I know I, I'm pretty sure I talked to somebody pretty high up in the organization. Mm -hmm. I remember that. It was just one of those times. Right, when you they were just on the ground floor still. They were there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's like, yeah, so you've got Jewish paternal ancestry. Um, and I went forward from that. Um, and how long ago was that? This would have been 2008, 2009. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, so once I had the name, I knew my father's name. I began to look for some relatives and find out what I could. I found the, the Jewish genealogy website, found out... Um, I didn't know he was uh, from Boston, found that information, surnames and the people who are in Boston, and I had a nice little collection. And through that, and through, th this is the other thing I didn't realize, through, there there were people in these families who still have those surnames. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of an unusual surname and, and well-known in the Boston area. And here I am showing up saying, I am part of this family because my mom had an affair with her boss and I, no one said anything to me, but I look back now and I just, just cringe. Again, it was just me that I wanted, I wanted this information so much. Mm -hmm. I'm in my forties guys. I don't wait any longer. Mm -hmm. I did make contact with a couple of people, distant cousins who were very uh, helpful to me. Uh, and one of them gave me my, um, she knew about my, um, wh who were my half siblings. And so she gave me their names and I contacted um, one of them. And uh, he knew my name right away because my mom had been his dad's legal secretary. And, oh, of course. Uh, so, I forgot about that part. <laughs> yeah. So wow. it's, it's, it's all in the family. Mm -hmm. uh, and said, I, you know, I'm pretty sure they had an affair, and I think he's my biological father. 
And to his credit, he said, uh, nothing surprises me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he was he was an attorney and he did the attorney thing. He asked uh, me to take a siblingship test to prove paternity on one side and disprove it on the other. And I did. So we proved that the, one of the brothers I grew up with was not my biological, was not, we did not have the same father. Right. The other brother, we did have the same father. So that was that. And um, my brother, I'll call him Matt, was just like, okay, you know, done. What else can I do for you? And I said, I'd, I thought everybody had information and stories about their family because mm-hmm. we did mm-hmm. on my mother's side. They were very big into genealogy. We had those stories. We told the same stories every year. Um, and they didn't have that. So I relate to that so much as a therapist, because I thought that too. I thought everybody knows everything about their family because of repeated stories and yeah, whether it's myth or truth or history or, you know, and um, I really had to learn. It wasn't until I was a therapist and I started working with children, but I would just say, so how did your parents meet? And they didn't, you know, people just look right. Adults, there doesn't have right. to be children, but the clients, but adults, like, I, I don't, I never thought about it. I'm like, what do you mean? You never, like, what do you mean? What? And like, what did your dad do? And like, oh, he was a business guy, you know, like, oh, yes. so it just is mind blowing. But I'm, I, I really did have to like adjust um, sort of expectations and understanding of like family dynamics in that way. Yeah. It's, it's very foreign to me. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, but believe me, I know a lot about this family now more than more than many other people who are born into the family. And, naturally. Right. So, a point of pride for me and my research skills. Uh, and so he, uh, I talked. He was a twin. Also, I talked to the other twin who had taken the test with me, Mark. And uh, he said, "Yeah, we we just don't have much for that." And they didn't say go away, but they were like, "I I just you know don't want to meet right now." And I understand. It was at the point where I understood that. And I also had a sister who lived out of state. And my brother said, "Her her first grandchild is being born. It's a difficult pregnancy. I don't want to bother her with this right now." And I said, "All right." Um, at some point, we did make contact with each other, and we she did fly out, fly back to Columbus. It turns out she had lived up the street uh, from me uh, within walking distance, and when I lived in Columbus, and just never ran across each other, never would have thought that she'd been here. I didn't know her married name and or anything like that. So we talked about a lot of that history. History. Um, she flew back here and we met, and then we, my ex-boyfriend and I, we flew out there and met, and met my nieces. And my sister was very welcoming. She's, uh, she's the life of the party. Uh, I can't be around her too much, and I know she's going to hear this. I mean, she just wears me out when I'm out there. But I... <laughs> I love that because that part is familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just so alive. My nieces told me that um, my, when their mom had told them, she was not really keen on meeting me and finding out uh, because it brought up a lot of bad memories for her about mm-hmm. her family. Right. Uh, you know, I don't know if they knew that their father had had the affair, but there had been some chaos and moving in and out. And, uh, and I think her daughters, you know, her closer in my age because of this generational difference, um, said, you know, you know what it was like for you to resolve that. And that's what this new guy is trying to do. He's just trying to meet his family and make some peace with it. And you've got that information. And so that opened her up. And, and that's we were interesting. That's interesting that she was, uh, that they are younger, like could see it from a different sort of, it's so often is that another generation sees it differently. So it's yeah. just sort of lucky for you that that it worked out that way or or nice exactly yeah it was it was a big help and 
so at this time, I was also doing more <clears throat> uh, genealogy research on Facebook group. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and somebody kindly suggested to me, and I was ever grateful for this, to not say that I was Jewish because that was a whole matter of ritual and observance. And I, it would be better for me to say I was, had Jewish ancestry. That was indisputable. Hmm. And so I had matured to a point to say, I get that. And uh, I, that's how I described myself. And if people did call me Jewish, I would correct them on that. A lot of my friends at that time. Let's see, in 2015, then uh, my brother that I had first contacted, Matt, uh, died suddenly. Oh. The funeral was in Cincinnati. My sister had mentioned it, and I said, "Do you should I come or not?" And she, typical social worker that she is, I'll leave that up to you. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going, <laughs> and so I I walk in. She knew I was going to be there. My nieces that I had met, and a nephew that I knew of, I had not met, and the surviving twin brother, I was down on the receiving line, and he catches my eye. I don't know if you can tell this. I'm very tall, six foot four. Oh. Uh, stand out in, a, in a, any room. He took one look at me and said, oh, I know who you are. You got the ears. <laughs> you mm -hmm. can see, and Now, I remember him saying, you got the schnoz. He said, no, it wasn't the schnoz. It was the ears. At any rate, I think I've got both when I've seen a photo of my biological father. Mm -hmm. And that, that was all good to be there. Um, the funeral, my ex-boyfriend and I were at, we, we had eschewed religion and just you know, had gotten away from so much of that. But here we are at this Jewish funeral. We'd never been to one before. And the way they talked about death and mourning and the reality of it was so different from anything else we had been to. We both came out of it like, you know, wow, that was much better. You know, just a great, mm -hmm. it was a real experience and to be honored that way and to talk about it. Came home from that and that sort of began my, um, should I convert to Judaism? And I looked into it. And I, I think that was uh, that was the deciding factor. So that was 2015. I sat on it for a few years. And coming into um, 2019 is when I first contacted my rabbi. And uh, we had a class starting up in the fall. I took my first Hebrew class, enrolled in that nine-month thing. COVID hit. We finished up that. And I finished my conversion in August of 2020. So now I can say I am Jewish and an observant Jew. So I'm very proud of all of this. We'll come up to the present. I'm very proud. I'm posting a lot of this on Facebook. I uh, I asked my brothers if they minded me talking about this and uh, knowing about it. And they said, no, this is your story. You know, we, we kind of thought you might do this, but it's who you are. Uh, one of my brothers, um, Gene, I, w I could talk to him about growing up in our alcoholic family and some stories. And at some point he said, you know, I, I don't like talking about this. I, I know you want the information, but it, it doesn't leave me feeling good. And so I, I learned to back off of that as well, just part oh. of my maturity. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what I was finding about Jewishly, I was just so happy with. Right. You might remember it was a uh, tense political time since, oh, 2016 in this mm -hmm. country. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Here in America? Brother, yeah. My brother Alan and I had a, uh, a fairly big dispute on Facebook and um, kind of broke contact and stopped talking mm. to each other. My dad was still alive at this time. I had asked my brothers, uh, never tell dad I'm doing this, and I do not want him to know. I, I had mentioned it to him casually years before when I was in my teens and treated it like a joke, again, not knowing how sure. sensitive it might be. Uh, so I just said, made that caveat, do not tell anybody. Let, if I'm going to tell, let me do it. But dad's old. He's going to die within a few years. I don't want him going out of here thinking I didn't look at him like a father. 
but that's what my brother Alan did. Oh uh, he, man, Alan! He, he took Dad and uh, he played it as if um, I, I was not proud of the side of the family I grew up with, our, our Greek side. That uh, I was ashamed of them, and that I was more—I wanted to reject that to be uh, to be part of this Jewish family, mm. with none of which was true. Uh, but and my dad. Um, Dad said, why didn't uh, Steve come and tell me? And Alan said, um, well, he thought you couldn't handle it. And my dad, who never swore, never got mm -hmm. angry, said basically, well, F that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Alan relayed to me later what had happened. And I'll, I'll relate this back to the very beginning of the story and, and the traumatic episode. My, my father said, I had asked my dad also if he remembered this murder. And he's like, I, I kind of do, but he didn't know a lot of it. But he pointed out that um, he had always felt like um, less than a man should be. Mm -hmm. uh, here he was with three kids in the 60s. They went bankrupt within five years after I was born. He said if he had been able to provide for the family, your mom wouldn't have had to go to work to earn extra money. She wouldn't have been at that restaurant. She wouldn't have seen the murder. She wouldn't have become an alcoholic. But then he said, um, but Steve is here because of that. This is something that my dad had long um, believed in, I think, that, that, um, that, that we as humans, our souls, you know, chose our path in life when, before we were born. And um, what happened then was this cosmic shift that I, I really can't give explanation to. My brothers and I had always viewed our dad as this weak, indecisive person, uh, especially in living with our mother. He he really didn't do much to get out of the marriage. My my older brothers asked him to get a divorce to get some peace in the house. Hmm. There was no question that my dad would care for us and our mom would leave. It was just so untenable. My dad didn't know how to make a move. So when your kids have to ask you to get a divorce. And after that, dad worked at the same job. He never tried to get ahead. He just wasn't a go-getter. He took his vacation pay every week and every year and never took a vacation. He didn't have a decent car until I was like uh, six, until I was 16 or 17. Mm -hmm. Always took the bus to work. But all we could really see was a failure. And so when he said that, it shot into place the strength that he had that we didn't know he had. And that he was aware of this whole time and never, never did anything to make me feel different. And none of his family either. Um, my brother asked him if other people knew, and people did say something like, Jack, you got to know, he's uh, <laughs> he might not be your kid. Mm -hmm. He's kind of tall. Kind of yeah. tall. My, my dad's family has Greek features that I can see in all of my cousins, and I just didn't have that. Some of my friends growing up would try to say, oh, you look like your dad. I did not look like my dad. So that was the big revelation for me. That was... The magic that came out of doing all of this work and it helped me to find a, a piece there that is so beautiful <laughs> you're kind of um that was really beautiful i didn't um you're a good storyteller um and how beautiful and and yet and also a part of the complexity of these stories and um and the humanity that that's present in so many different ways from so many different places. And, uh, and the way that it's interesting, the way that your story has 
um, I, when I was growing up, we had a, we had like a children's book that was, I don't know what it was called, but it was like, fortunately, unfortunately, and it would be like, fortunately, unfortunately, there was a storm. Fortunately, the boy had a boat. Unfortunately, not in a, in a, a fortune or not fortune way, but it's just interesting that, um, I guess it's just more of, of the, of the multifaceted element of how these things don't have a, they're not black or white. And like, I don't, I don't like that your brother you know, sort of betrayed you and told this, went and told your dad. And yet then you wouldn't have had this story from your dad and this revelation. And maybe all your brothers wouldn't have had this shift. Exactly. And I, I didn't hold it against my brother. Uh, mm -hmm. our, our brother, Gene, called and told me about it. And he said, I know you didn't want dad to know. I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do about it now. Right. Dad and I never talked about it. And I understood why Alan did it. Uh, I really did. I mean, I, I could be I mean, his actions make him look like a jerk, but I, I can walk into a room and change the temperature. You know, you know, I can I can really put people down with a glance. So I'm sure I did some of that on my own in my own way. And we've been able to talk about it. It's a, it is a real gift. Yeah. And I know this story is so different from uh, many of the others that people run across. Um, it, it was so important to me to find I didn't have pictures of people that I recognized on that side until my father, the photos of him were when he was older. He died um, He died when he was 67. And let me come back to this part. Um, where I am placed in the generations in relation to cousins on that side are a little backwards. My father was 53 when I was born. Go dad. You're right. You're, you're right. My mom is 40, right? Mm -hmm. So my father's born in 1912. My, my, um, mother was born in 1925. His father was born 1879 in England. My grandmother was born on my mother's side 1902. So this is such, I, I'm a generation behind. So mm -hmm. where I am at 56, I am a great grandchild to somebody in their 70s who is a great, great grandchild of the same person. Right. It's, it's very odd. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So they're like, how does, how, if I talk to them, they're like, well, shouldn't you be this generation? I say, well, you got to remember uh, the man was older. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <So>. It waited. <laughs> <laughs> the world wasn't ready for you yet. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I think the term we, we always are using is genetic mirroring, right. And how powerful it is. It's not just about looks. It's something to do with the, with, a, with the genealogical thread and how important it is to be able to follow it backwards through the lines lineage. I don't know if I came up with this or if I heard it somewhere, but uh, the concept of genetic memory, it's something embedded in us. Like mm -hmm. I would think if you were to take me back to Ireland, you know, something would kick in more than it would if I were in Belgium, you know, where I don't right. have any roots from sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a little, I mean, it just uh, comes up again and again and again. Does it with, so, it does, you know? With yeah. People. Oh yeah, absolutely. I like sort of, um, uh, well, epigenetics is a whole study of that. They really sort of focus on trauma carrying through to generations, but people again and again, especially in our, you know, in the, in the MPE community, or just talk about like being, being in, being in lands, you know, so often and feeling familiar, um, and, and other things we don't consider relational. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as mm -hmm. being in, being things in common, um, places, places, or behaviors, or a food, or a music, or so many things that that they find out later connects them to a to a lineage. Mm -hmm. You know, really powerful.
I thought I had a natural knack for pronouncing the uh, Slavic and um, Hebrew names that I ran across. I, they just kind of rolled off my tongue for the most part. And, you know, I like to think that that was in, you know, in there as well. <laughs> you know, so it's just, it's just a person trying to fit themselves into something that they didn't have. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and who, and, and it's, that's a, that's an interesting one. Cause there's just no way to know. maybe maybe you're just good at saying it maybe it's genetic um but how lovely to at least have one sort of benchmark for yourself or buoy to or place to understand it and you talked about uh the generational trauma and i Mm -hmm. i think that's that's something that that i see coming out of this is that we've we've cut that off uh by coming to terms with this because my mom didn't tell her nobody knew about this if we didn't have that letter there was there was another story that I won't go into because it involves my brother Alan's private life. But during the point when we were not talking to each other, we were at a Christmas gathering, and uh, he told a story and he connected it to mom in a way, and uh, the information came out about this letter, and that's what kind of started me down this path. And I I was able to find uh, the police report, the news report of when it happened, and. My mother was not named in it, so that always was suspect. But still, she had told my brother that story, so why should we not believe it? Mm-hmm. I th- I wonder if it's helpful for anybody who is in a family system that that has a has a particularly um, painful dysfunction, like your mother's alcoholism is sort of like the the pointed to source of pain. And as far as everybody knows it's come out of nowhere. So that's how you all developed. And that's how your family system was. And that's how you understand life. And like, to think that you came out of a vacuum, and then to finally have it all placed to an event that not only humanizes your mother, but makes it all make sense. That's got to be powerful information. It, It was, I remember her sisters, I would ask her, you know, how she became alcoholic. And she was a hard drinker. And uh, she said, I, I said, did she drink when she was younger? And she said, maybe a beer once a month. It was like, not a thing. Hmm. And so it was, it always was this mystery and cutting that trauma, stopping that in some way and being able to talk about it are, are gifts of our generation. Yeah, it's a powerful way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're you you're active in a in a synagogue and are you are you active at all with other um like npes in our community that have converted later in life due to sort of um i know none Mm -hmm. none that i Mm -hmm. none that i know of and actually except for the podcast it's something that i i try not to talk about uh, my rabbi will ask me, he teaches this class every year. He's asked me twice to talk about what it is like to be on the conversion process. And mm-hmm. I'll mention my ancestry, mm-hmm. but I never wanted other uh, converts to feel that I had a leg up on, on converting. Right. I, it was my motivation, which is personal, but I, I'm no different from anybody else. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm the new Jew in every situation. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I haven't talked, I, I did talk to other MPEs. I was on a couple of Facebook groups that were secret. Um, and join those. Um, but I realized my contribution was just going to be a little different. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I dropped out. They had good support from other people who had been through the same thing. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That is just, I want to say it's lovely. And I don't know if you think of your story as lovely, but because there's some really hard parts of it. I do, though. But yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that you contacted me to talk about it. No, I'm just trying to think if I have any other, any other, um, 
any questions because you're such a good storyteller. I don't even have to like go back and be like, well, what about the little bit um, Do you wish there was anything that that you had known at, at some point, or do you wish that that people would would think about any 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 part of of their DNA discovery a certain way, or that do you have any advice for MPEs or or any any DNA discovery people? I I would say. Um don't let people take your story away from your you your own truth um but it may be a lonely road at first um this knowledge uh, undermines people uh who have gotten used to a narrative even people who know and think that it's buried away and having to inform other people even people who aren't part of the story find it a little bit shocking particularly the way i i might have told it and it always comes down, generally, not always, it comes down to matters of sex and, and affairs or something illicit, except for the, the people who are donor conceived. But even then, the doctors may have right, even used then, the same sample repeatedly. And when we say sample, we mean sperm, which is gross. Yeah. Like, it's just like, no matter what, it gets like, it gets uncomfortable very quickly. Uh, you'll, I would say to new people who are new that you will find your community and find them and talk about it. Um, any new relatives you find, handle with kid gloves, uh, especially mm. if you find them on a DNA match test. Uh, play dumb. If they reach out to you, play a little dumb at first. If that works, don't lie. But um, I went about it rather, like I said, heavy-handed, and I was fortunate with the people that I contacted. And also, I did hear that, um, and I, I just found some more information today as to why. I heard that my father was somewhat regarded as the black sheep of the family. He was he grew up in Boston and left and came to Dayton, and you know, no one really kind of knew why. And I think that what I found today, I understand why now a little bit more. Ah, uh, okay. I also found that he uh, had been married uh, for two years, and that divorce I think was a part of it uh, in Boston. And uh, even his kids didn't know that he had that first marriage. No, mm -hmm. I am the researcher. You need anything? Yeah, yeah. To you're <laughs> you're gonna be you're gonna be my guy. It's so interesting how things. I think about this a lot with my my own situation, and and because that's the best easiest way to look to to easiest example right in front of my face all the time. But how to think of something like a marriage that you never told anybody about, or like your like adult children finding out about a marriage. Of their parents and for them it was so long ago and like two years is just such a blip in the grand scheme of things but but for anybody younger than that and for a child that thinks they know everything it just i don't know it's just mind-blowing like the things and i've just only now started to realize that like oh this thing that happened a long time ago that felt like a big deal that was only one year of my life and like yes. uh, you know that has respective changes as you age about about the importance of things on the grand scheme i don't know so the marriage the marriage one is one of those and the hidden children is the other one <laughs> but you yeah. know all of us surprise kids but um the things that that to my parents feel so long ago and to me it's fresh information and yeah these these stories are always have a, a close place to my heart. I've ran mm -hmm. across a couple of people. Uh, one friend said, you wouldn't believe my story if I told you. So I told her mine. And she said, God, you would believe it. <laughs> yeah, you would totally believe it. Yeah, there's nothing we don't believe yeah. after this. Absolutely. Oh, Stephen, this was great. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Eve. Um, I'm really glad to be able to contribute to the podcast. Yeah. I, I, I was worried that this was a little different and wouldn't fit in, but uh, nope, it's perfect. You'll have a way to do it. Your podcast has really evolved. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I got goosebumps. See, just good. <laughs> good. It was just lovely to get to like end the afternoon this way. I'm kind of feel teary um, about so many elements of this experience with you. Um, That's the healing. Yeah. Yeah. You just are a really special person. I'm so glad you contacted me. Um, and your dad was special and made me think about my dad, you know, all the dads, we need to do something about yeah, all the men that raise their children with love and without questions. Yes. Many men would have walked out. Yep. Right. I mean, so many men and we, those of us who can, can, can look to someone with that is, um, we need a word or something, <laughs> a word or a day or a. Um, and you just really, you really made me think about that and my own dad. So, yeah. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you very much. Eve. It's a pleasure talking to you. Oh, likewise. Likewise. I hope that one day we get to be in the same place together. Yes. All right. And my husband is six, four. I wanted oh. to say that <laughs> when you were like, I'm really tall. I was like, I know that I really well, that is very tall. It is. All right. Have a wonderful yeah. evening. You as well. Be well. Okay. Thanks. Bye. I want to express gratitude to Stephen for coming on and sharing his story. It is no small feat to be vulnerable with me, to be vulnerable knowing uh, it's recorded, but I think his story is going to help some people. I, I know it is. So, hey, remember in 2022, I had a couple of like book club Zoom parties? Well, it's time to start having some of those again. And the first one is coming right up. So hello, get on it. Meet me on Zoom, uh, March 26th, 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We are going to talk about the book Junkyard Girl with special guest, the author herself, Caroline Montes de Oca. Um, send me an email or a DM on the socials to get more info. Definitely check out my Instagram to stay on top of these things. I'd love to have you there. I can be found at Everything's Relative Podcast. So make sure we're connected uh, there. That's like Instagram, Facebook. And join us. Come do it. Junkyard Girl by Caroline Montes de Oca, March 26. Uh, and hey, look, I am trying to keep these things chill. Please do not feel like you have, have to have read the book to be a part of it. Is that the idea? Yes, of course. But also the idea is to just nurture community, support one another, and that includes like supporting the members of our world who are writing books. So come on over. Ask me for a link. That's all for today, my people. Uh, thank you for being a part of this wild life we're all living. Thanks for listening. Let me know if you have a story to tell, questions, concerns, complaints even compliments, uh, you can email me. Find ways to support the podcast on the website, everythingsrelativepodcast.com. And please make sure you're taking care of yourself. Can you believe this is season five of this project? Whew. And hey, be nice to one another. Bye-bye. Everything's Relative with Eve Sturgis is produced by Eve Sturgis and Kaylin Egan and edited by Joy Rumor. Logo designed by Ivy McNally and music is used with permission from Goodbye the Band. Eve is a licensed psychotherapist, but her podcast episodes are not therapy sessions. Mm -hmm.